Hello and welcome to the second programme in this series of Faber podcasts to celebrate the Britain centenary. I've called this programme A Documented Life, because in it we look at some of the evidence that later writers and musicians have had to work with when they come to assess Britain the musician and the man. Filmmaker and author of The Essential Britain, John Bridcut on Britain the Squirrel. The extraordinary thing about Britain is that I think he is probably the best documented composer of any composer in history. There are some wonderful composer museums in Europe, Verdi, Beethoven, Mozart, and so on. But no one is as well documented as Britain. If you think that there are some 80,000, 80, 80,000 letters in the Britain Peers archive, half of which are written by Britain and half he received, roughly that sort of order. And the reason for this incredible documentation is Britain himself. He was a magpie. He, he hoarded, or a squirrel, perhaps I should say. Magpies steal things. I don't think he necessarily stole them. But he squirreled away all this stuff. And whenever he got a letter, he wrote at the top the, name, the, the surname of the person in pencil who it had come from so that it could be filed properly. All this was filed away, and um, all his manuscripts, the various different drafts of manuscripts. I mean, nowadays, with composers writing direct onto computer, these drafts will be very hard to unearth by future historians, if at all. It depends if, if composers save these drafts or not. All Britain's drafts are there. He very seldom tore things up. There was a, supposed to be a case of a letter that he didn't like from W.A. Jordan which he tore into shreds and sent back in the same envelope. <laughs> um, that was a very rare example. He hoarded all these things. Yet despite the wealth of written material preserved from Britain's life and a sizeable body of audio recordings, there is little video footage of him rehearsing or conducting. John Bridcut again. There's surprisingly little. It's embarrassing to feel that Death in Venice, which is one of his greatest operas, that we would never have seen him conduct because he was too ill. But nonetheless, there is, there's no evidence of that in its first performance, which, was, which owed so much to his vision of the piece. Of him conducting, there's remarkably little. There are a few concerts. But to see him actually working with an orchestra or with a choir, I constantly marvel at how blind or deaf television executives and some producers are to the marvels of rehearsal. This is where music is made. It's, it's the crucible in which the performance is fashioned. And although the performance of, is, of course, essential and important, if you haven't actually witnessed the rehearsal, you don't begin to understand half of what's going on. There is one wonderful piece on Canadian television of his Nocturne, which is a piece of 20, 25 minutes, a wonderful song cycle with different instruments of the orchestra accompanying the tenor voice and then in the last movement they all combine uh, in a full orchestral movement and there's this wonderful rehearsal with the Canadian and maybe the CBC Symphony Orchestra something like that for Canadian television and he's rehearsing meticulously and not much humor very very particular in what he wants he goes on and on and then Peter Pierce wanders over in the middle of the rehearsals, because he hadn't been singing, he was just Ben was just rehearsing the orchestra, and Peter Pierce says, "Ben, I think it's time we did the performance." 
And suddenly the bed says, oh yes, of course we must. And so they, then they do the full performance. And it's a wonderful insight into his intense preoccupation with the detail of what he was trying to achieve. And, and he's never rude to performers, but he's demanding and there's, there's no soft soaping. Another fascinating source of insight into Britain's life and art is, of course, first-hand testimony. Composer Colin Matthews, who worked closely with Britain on some of his late scores, has warned of the risk of recollections being turned into burnished memories over time, polished up a little more with each retelling. Nonetheless, I couldn't resist asking Colin when we met about the time when he and his brother, also a composer, played a piano version of Britain's third and final quartet to the composer who was by then too ill to play it himself at the keyboard. Was this performance of the piano transcription the first time that Britton had heard the piece, I asked? No, because I had been playing it through myself with him. I mean, he, would, he, could, he could play with his left hand, so we, we played it as a sort of <laughs> a, a three-handed version. And this was as the sketches progressed. But the idea of playing it through was he did want to hear the thing as a whole other than in his head and i you know i was not much of a pianist and so you know my, my attempts at playing it, what he got from me was a sort of composer's ear and eyes so i i could i could get my way through it but to actually give a performance it did need the two of us and i had to some of it i had to write out especially for that uh, that occasion because I mean, you can't you can't sustain notes on the keyboard the no. way you can on strings. You can't no. get a harmonic, so it's sort of like well, a black and white photograph of a colour painting exactly. or something. Well, that that's that's what it was, and I mean, string quartet translates to piano in in the worst possible mm. way of almost any medium. But I mean, we we did find our way through it, and it certainly worked, and it it made a difference. I think to, I mean, Britain he still had a few areas where he wasn't entirely sure of what he wanted and I think that confirmed what 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 he wanted and this was this was well in advance of the Amadeus Quartet who didn't come to rehearse it until uh, nearly a year later. When the performance was over Britton asked the brothers do you think it's any good? One fascinating record of Britton rehearsing one of his most acclaimed works The War Requiem would never have seen the light of day if Britton had had his way. As it was, it was put together without his knowledge. John Britkett again. This was John Culshaw, who he definitely had quite a soft spot for, I think. He was recording producer at Decker. He later became a BBC top producer of and, and produced some of Britain's operas. I mean, the Burning Fiery Furnace, which was filmed by the BBC in the late 60s. That was because of John Culshaw. But John Culshaw was the recording producer for Decker at the time of the recording of The War Requiem in 1963. And yes, he, unbeknownst to Britain, gathered all the outtakes from the recordings. And so Britain would be, you know, they'd do a take of a particular movement and then he'd go back through the movement saying what was wrong. And all this is on the reels of tape were going round and round. And Britain had no idea this was happening. And I think it was his 50th birthday in 1963, that would have been yes, November that year, after they'd been doing the recording, that John Culshaw presented him with a disc. I mean, he gave him a, an LP of these outtakes. And Britain was absolutely horrified and very angry that he'd been recorded without his knowledge. I think 
Decker had made sure that they had a spare copy of this. And But Britain actually did not throw this away. He, he just put it in a cupboard, and I'm sure never ever listened to it. And so there's one copy there, and there's at the Britain Peers archive, and, there's, and Decker have their own material, and indeed it has been issued now on CD. And it's a fascinating document, because you hear the intense nervous energy of the man. He turns the pages as though he's tearing the score, goes psh, psh, as he's going back through the pages to work out what he got to say to the sopranos, what he got to say to the boys' choir. And he's always got a list of about eight things in his head, and he just goes through them really economically. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And there's not a wasted second. And it's an example which many conductors who work as conductors full-time would do well to emulate because it's so economical and so focused on what he had identified as problems in the previous performance and previous take that he needed to correct. Finally, a confession from Colin Matthews of a piece of documentary evidence that has disappeared thanks to his eraser. But before we get to that, he explains what his job as a copyist entailed when he was working on Britain's final opera, Death in Venice. Well, to produce the vocal score of Death in Venice, I would receive in the post photocopies of Britain's sketches. And it was my job. Um, it's a mixture of copying and editing. I mean, that's, it's, it's to copy out neatly so that the singers could read from the score at Britain's sketch, which tended to be written almost as if it was written for the piano. So only on two or three musical lines. And I had to tidy that up, make it very legible and 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 playable at the piano in a way that the sketches wouldn't necessarily be, and then send it back to Britain. The, the extraordinary thing there was the process that Britain would then mark it up by hand and send it back to me, and my job was to rub out all of Britain's <laughs> markings on, on the page. Um, no, in those days, you couldn't instantly photocopy, and I never, stupidly, never thought to you know, save one of these pages and, and just recopy it. You didn't, you didn't feel the sort of angel of history looking over your shoulder? No, the, that's the strange thing, you don't. I mean, you know, I was doing a job, and I hadn't really thought of it in that context. Now, now when and the manuscripts are so, so precious and you touch them with gloves only. It's, it's a different world altogether. Colin Matthews. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Faber to mark the Britain centenary. There are full details about the books on Britain published by Faber, including two by John Bridkett and the multi-volume selection from the composer's 80,000 letters that he mentioned earlier on the website at faber.co.uk. And further episodes in this series will be appearing throughout the autumn so I hope you'll want to hear them all. For the moment, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.